Welcome to Salon Evocations, a podcast about taking the study of all things literary out of the institutional space of the classroom and into the world. I'm your host, Kim Coates of Evocations Review, and I'm here with my co-host, collaborator, and co-conspirator, Sophia Basaldua-Sun of The Metropolitanist, and this is our graduate school episode. Today, we're talking all things graduate school. Hi, Sophia. Hey, Kim. Before I started my PhD and throughout the course of it, some professors told me here and there that I ought to consider leaving. There were many reasons. The market for employment was awful. The work-life balance was non-existent. My own creative tendencies seemed incompatible with the conservative realities of the industry. My frustrations with discrimination or sexism in the academy, etc. The list goes on. <laughs> I originally thought that these comments were somehow slights on me, and I took them personally. However, I came to understand they were actually critiques of the field or industry in general. So I want to give some practical and real advice and viewpoints on graduate school, and specifically PhDs, that I learned along the way to help anyone else who may find themselves in similar shoes, and also having an abundance of overly negative advice given to them. The benefit of recently completing graduate school places Sophia and myself in the perfect position to look back and comment on the experience with a clear head, yet still remembering all the important details. So in this episode, we're going to discuss key milestones or moments along the grad school journey, the mental health epidemic facing graduate students today, and how we each coped with that, as well as the career options for graduates, especially in humanities grad programs. We want to unpack the mystery surrounding why go to graduate school and help students based on what we learned. So, Sophia, do you want to lead us through a little bit of timeline or milestones of what a student might face in a PhD program? Yeah, definitely. So I think for anyone tuning in who also is maybe not looking at going into a PhD program, just to kind of give you a sense of what the process that your professors go through Um, in order to qualify to be a specialist in their field and to teach and research and communicate about their field. Um, Most people spend somewhere between, I think the tradition used to be that you would spend about eight years actually doing your dissertation. Uh, Well, not doing the dissertation, but doing a PhD in full. But budget cuts over the last, what, like probably 20 years um, as funding especially government funding in the United States has been withdrawn from universities has meant that the um, PhD funding period has gotten a lot shorter. So now, for example, at Stony Brook where Kim and I did our PhDs, funding is typically for four years guaranteed. Um, I ended up getting five years because I had an alternative source of funding coming from another um kind of organization within Stony Brook. But it usually takes people, I think, on average at, at least six years, although Kim took five. But Yeah, and, usually- and someone in our program also took four, but I don't know if that was because our program was in a strange situation of being defunded halfway through our uh, progress towards our degrees. So I think a lot of the people in our department felt a lot of pressure to just kind of get out and get the degree and get out. And not until recently, right? Because like when I came into the program, no one had finished under six years. Okay. Um, In spite of the funding, which is crazy to think about that um, a university would be funding a PhD for too short an amount of time and then expecting their like graduates to just make up the difference because one reason that PhDs are usually funded is that it's agreed to do this level of study for this long um, with the expectation that, uh, with the salary expectations that you have coming out, that you would probably never pay off the student debt accrued during that time period if you were to pay for your education. So there are these workarounds like teaching for the university as you are doing your PhD. What that does is it provides the university with an incredibly cheap workforce, and that's become a problem now, 
but it also just allows the graduate students to have a source of income rather than paying to get the PhD, which is how I think how it was originally conceived. This is why you would be funded. Um, that being said, the process of whether it's a four, five, or six-year PhD, and I think most programs are cutting their funding around four to five years currently with the occasional aberration trying to get you out in three, which is really insane. Wow. Um, the way that it breaks down is you spend about two years doing coursework. Then you have one year for what are called comprehensive exams, which is a year of reading and preparation to illustrate that you really know your field. This is typically the point that people in hindsight, professors, for example, will say was the hardest of mm. the process. Um, it's a really stressful yeah, time. I agree and I with think, that. yeah, I think it should be rethought, to be honest. I think that there are ways that it could be made more efficient. Um, but it, the way that it exists right now, it's a bit of an overwhelming task, which is you spend an entire year reading and then after a year of like assimilating or trying to onboard something like 145 to 200 texts, you then sit down for three hours and four people try to um, assess whether you've done your reading or not. Yeah, and, then, and I, I think that mm -hmm. the comprehensive exams, which we called comps in our in our department, I think that those can vary slightly from program to program and even department to department. Like I know the philosophy department called field them Field to field, quals. it's really different too. Yeah. So those are not always like exactly the same for every school, but this general idea of an oral exam based on like historical knowledge of your field, that's consistent. Yeah. And some of them, some of them are different. For example, I knew a few like economics PhDs when I was a master's student at Clemson and they also had qualifying exams rather than comprehensive exams. That was the language that they used. And theirs was actually broken into three parts um, and it was written. So you had to solve some kind of a problem. You were you didn't know what problem you were going to get, but whatever problem you got at each of the three stages, you had to solve that problem within a certain amount of time. And so that's, theirs was like more of a written yeah, process. The, they may have the had an oral component um, as well. The Women's Gender Studies program at Stony Brook also has a similar process. Theirs are written which I remember being so jealous. I was like, why do we have to do an oral, two-hour oral exam? Um, obviously, as a writer, I would have way preferred to have the luxury of taking home these questions and writing them. Oh, man, I preferred doing the oral exam, to be honest, because it was like, <laughs> you know, they couldn't fault you if, like, off the top of your That's head, true. you missed yeah. a few things. But if you take it home, then it's like, I don't want to take that exam home. But... Um, no, but I mean, I think it's, yeah, it has its pluses and minuses. And I think, frankly, just doing the whole thing at once is a little, I mean, it's, it's definitely, they put you through your paces, I guess, is the concept. But I think um, three hours to cover, like, my list was 211 works. Like, we covered a handful. So, it's not really sure what it's testing for. But <laughs> yeah. they have their ways. Um, so, I think for... Um, for, I, again, I don't know how true this is for every program, but I think it's fairly common that you'll have a professor who is leading each of these lists that Sophia mentioned. So mm -hmm. when you prepare for your comprehensive exams, it's it comes directly after you complete coursework, usually two years into the degree. And it's sort of the first time that you have a choice of like putting forth your ideas the way you want. You don't have to necessarily take another course, you can decide what your list of books is going to be for a certain area. And so this means that you are sort of flung out into your department and it becomes your responsibility, which is a reoccurring theme. You might have already assumed that because it's graduate school, but it truly is on the student's shoulders to 100% decide who they want to be their mentors for their comprehensive exam. So you might have come into the department thinking you wanted to work with one professor, but then two years in, you realize you're just not that aligned on certain things, and you might be gravitating towards another professor for some reason. So then it becomes your responsibility to approach these professors um, in whatever kind, mature, responsible way you can and ask them to work with you. And this sort of, for me anyway, was like the first time that I felt like I could exert that autonomy as a scholar to begin to reach out to people who I wanted to work with and to begin to develop 
reading list that really narrowed in on what I was interested in studying. Yeah, I really think that the comprehensive exam, like the year of preparation, it's kind of the first time that you really begin to frame yourself as who you are going to be as a scholar and people really start treating you like a scholar as in, you know, rather than being in a class where someone else sets the reading list and then you just kind of do the work, this is where you become the person who makes the list. And who drives their work and who picks out the colleagues that you want to work with or surround yourself with. So this is, I think it's interesting because it's not until after the comprehensive exam that you become a PhD candidate as opposed to being a PhD student. So you're considered to have reached this new level, which is called candidacy. Um, But the comprehensive exam, in in a way, it's kind of like a test or a trial where you know, they see if you are self-driven enough or know how to kind of organize yourself to the point that you can get through this large project. Um, I think in the corporate world, this would be called being like self-driven and uh, yeah, being able to break down like large projects into small projects or like how to run something big over a period of time. There's also, Sophia kind of mentioned at the beginning about the years, the length of time that these degrees take. So being deadline driven or being able to adhere to deadlines will definitely help you in the process if you're trying to get through in four or five years, which is pretty much the shortest either of us have heard of. So because a lot of these things are on your own timeline, like you need to get the professors to sign off on certain things and to agree to meet at certain times in a room, which can be unbelievably difficult. (laughs) But other than that, a lot of this work is done by the student's own will. So yeah, I think it's definitely time management, um, leadership, all these sorts of things that you get to, I see it as sort of an opportunity that the student finally gets to put these things into play because coursework for me, I found it really sort of repetitive. Um, I didn't like the affect in the courses. I found students to be uncomfortable and sort of trying to prove themselves in a way that didn't make for a lot of true open conversation. I found that students often just wanted to like um, talk about how much they knew, (laughs) which, which made coursework not that enjoyable for me. I mean, comps were not enjoyable either, but I think the positive side of it is you you can see yourself moving through the steps of the degree. And I think the you, comprehensive exams, it's like a coming of age, right? It's like the first time you get to really define yeah. what it is that you want to work on, what you want to be reading. And this is really what you've been working for when you come to the PhD. I mean, you don't really come to learn how to take a course. You already know how to do that. And the process of coursework in some ways in the United States, this may be a little too elongated. Um, yeah, for example, in like the British system, Once you get into a PhD program, you don't take courses. You go straight into starting to work on your independent project. And I I think that's kind of, it says a lot about the different ways that a PhD can be configured. I mean, I wouldn't get rid of coursework entirely because I think there are certain things that it's very useful um, to see how professors at your new university structure a course, how they teach a particular subject, like having taken the history of literary theory and criticism three times, once as an undergrad, <laughs> once as a grad or as a master's student, and then once as a PhD student, I've had the benefit of seeing three different ways of teaching that course. And that definitely informs the way that I then taught it when I was given that class to teach to undergraduates. So I think that there's a value, but at the same time, it's also like something that graduate students really already know how to do. And I would say that this is, it's not until you get to the um, comprehensive exams that you really begin to see who is prepared and who maybe still has a little bit more maturing to do before they're going to get to the end of their PhD because everybody comes in in any given cohort knowing how to take a class. Right. And probably being pretty good at taking classes because like they made it to this point. But it's at the comprehensive exams, many, and this this happens in the master's too. It's when you reach that self-driven project of the thesis, a lot of people fall apart. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. People kind of like drop along the way. The people standing at the end are definitely smaller than the group of people standing at the beginning. Um, but okay, let's assume you made it through the comprehensive exam, which is amazing. You know, Sophia and I went out for drinks at a fancy place in Manhattan. It was great. I felt on top of the world when I passed my comprehensive exam. 
I went I got I got a fancy sushi dinner when I passed my comprehensive exam yeah so big celebration cheers to whoever just did that the next step is to form your prospectus which essentially is your blueprint or your plan of what your dissertation is going to be about and is going to be on that's about three months long for anyone who wants the time frame (laughs) well it was for you I mean that's what I mean these timelines are flexible based on the work that the individual is putting into it and well according according to the handbook because people do take longer but according to the handbook you were to have it in within three months of completing your um, comprehensive exam and I think you know it's important that they have these deadlines not because they're going to make you adhere to them because but because at some point you do have to have something you can kind of wave in graduate students faces and go like it's time yeah yeah so that's that's the um, the next step and the prospectus is I mean, everybody, every professor I ever spoke to about it said the same thing. They basically said, like, your actual dissertation is going to probably be very different from from your prospectus, and that's okay. Just write down what you think you want to write your book on. Just write it down, like, sort of get it going. It basically provides a short introduction of what you're thinking of doing, and then each chapter summary of what you think you're going to do in each chapter and that's sort of the whole document, more or less. And and a literature review. The way, well, at least right. I I did professionalization with um, Rayford Gwens, and he was like, <laughs> he's a really interesting person to do professionalization with because he had like he's very he has a very specific concept of what it means to like be a scholar, and he's a very productive one, at least in terms of writing. So he's like a good person to study writing under, for that reason. But his the way that he described it was, you need to have an introduction that like describes your project treat it like a book introduction in a lot of ways but it should describe your project give a review of what's been written what you know what needs to be written that kind of thing like where the gap like you should be identifying what the gaps are um, as you're doing this literature review of sort of what is available on your subject and then you have the chapter breakdown Mm-hmm. Um, of like what exactly how your project is going to how you're going to do this thing that you've said in your first few paragraphs you're going to do <laughs> and, and a long um, bibliography <laughs> yeah and this is the, I think the first time where you're actually coming up with an original research project because you think of the comprehensive exams as kind of a, a moment where you become in a way qualified to teach like a broad survey course but this is the place where you move from like I know this material and I can pass it down to someone else to and here's what I can say to my colleagues um, about how I'm going to change the field right and and also for that document for the prospectus document which is about I think maybe 20 pages maybe a little bit less after you have written that you need to do a prospectus defense so you actually need to again convene with professors with your committee as they call it and you Which need you to may have rethought it. a little bit <laughs> yeah i want to i want to ask you some more about that in a minute but when you actually sit down to do this prospectus defense it's a very different i would say very different atmosphere than the comprehensive exams it's more of a exciting event because you're actually discussing what you're going to go do versus being judged on your knowledge of the field and but they do nonetheless they still do need to you know pass you sign you off say like okay we agree Um, we as these people in the field there's a lot of old school things in academia this is sort of one of them like these sort of like knowledgeable experts need to agree that you're on the path to go do this project that you said you would do And then once they give you the stamp of approval, your job is to go out and write the dissertation. But Sophia brought up a really great point that I want to actually ask her to flesh out a little bit more, which is this idea of committee members changing or evolving over the course of your time as a PhD student and throughout these different milestones we're talking about. Um, Do you think that it's a good idea to change your committee members, Sophia? I think it's inevitable that at least one of your committee members you're going to end up changing during your time as a PhD student, whether that's because maybe, you know, you lose someone to a different university and they just don't have the time to be on your committee anymore. Not always the case, but it happens. Um, or you just find that, like, you thought this person was a good fit, but it turns out maybe um, maybe your subject has changed or 
I don't know. It's just not, it's not making sense to have them anymore. Maybe you've realized that there's a, like a better topical fit for you on campus. And it's really imperative that you, you know, work with the people whose work um, is most closely associated with what you're doing as opposed to just any random person that you like. Um, And then I think another element is of course, you know, do you get along is like a key thing. If you're, you know, really butting heads with someone on your committee and, mm-hmm. you know, it's and the whole committee isn't getting behind them, it may be time to find an alternative committee member um, for that reason. I mean, I think if your whole committee unites against you, you might want to consider that maybe there's something in your approach that's like <laughs> upsetting people. But yeah, I mean, if it's just one person and you guys are just, you know, really clashing then it can be a good idea to go ahead and find someone else. And the comprehensive exam, as much as it's a test of you, is also a really great time to figure out, you know, who do you gel with and who don't you. And um, I think most people end up replacing at least one person on their committee around that time for that reason. And then I think it's pretty natural for, another, even though I didn't have this happen, but it's pretty natural, I think, once you're through the prospectus. Actually, I guess I did have it happen because the prospectus Nikos wasn't on my committee. And then it was suggested, you know, that he would make a good fourth member. And so I added someone after, the, like, in hindsight, now that everyone had seen my prospectus, they thought this guy needs to be on her committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then moving into the dissertation, now I had a new member in, sort of brought onto the project precisely because people better understood what my project was. So I think it's very natural that you're going to see these kinds of fluctuations. Yeah. Yeah, great great points. And I think that people should not be afraid to realize that their committee members might evolve. Although the PhD is a very solitary project and endeavor, it's also a social endeavor in the sense that these committee members are going to be with you for years on end. And as Sophia mentioned, you want to make sure they're people you get along with, like just at the base level. Um, It's amazing how many PhD students have an advisor, which is like their main committee member, who they just don't get along with or they just don't work well with. And I think some of the best advice I ever got about choosing an advisor was make sure it's someone you work well with. Um, Of course, you want them to be able to help your project and they need to be able to provide really great feedback. But at the end of the day, you're stuck with these people for a couple of years and you know, you don't want to cringe every time you see their email in your inbox or whatever. Like, you want these to be yeah. people you can get along with. And I think you have to really know your working style as a part of that as well. You know, a lot of this comes down to knowing yourself. Because, for example, I know I'm a very self-driven person. I knew that I wasn't going to need someone who's, like, I didn't want someone breathing down my neck, frankly. Because, like, I'm going to do my work. And I don't I don't want, like, a taskmaster or, like, someone who polices me into doing it because I already know I'm going to do it. So I picked someone who I knew would kind of give me the space and the freedom that I needed to um, really kind of flourish and to write the dissertation as I envisioned it. I mean, maybe I could have used someone a little bit stricter in the end, but I think ultimately I needed someone who would trust me more than I needed someone who was going to, like, kind of stand over me and crack the whip. Um, But then again, you know, I think that there are other people who work really well with someone who gives, you know, very aggressive feedback, who, um, you know, is kind of on top of you every step of the way, looking over every draft of your dissertation. I mean, you can hear it in my voice already. I'm like, no, not me. (laughs) Um, But but there are people who, you know, that works for. They want that person who every time they send them a chapter, like a week later, they have that chapter back with like, you know, every line crossed out because that's how they work best. Wow. Um, yeah, I think I'm definitely more like you than than that person. But um, so, I wish yeah, I was like that person. I wish when people sent me back my drafts with uh, all the lines crossed out that I went like, oh, great. Now I can really make this good. Usually I just go like, oh, no. Yeah, I, I mean, you're totally right. Like you need to know how you work. And, and if you've gotten to that point in the project and you're actually writing your chapters, Hopefully, you know yourself aware enough at that point to know what kind of working style really is the best for you and to act on that. One of my major points of advice to graduate students in general is to trust your instincts. Um, It's a hard position to be in to have professors all around you and to feel like you're the lowest rung of the ladder. But truly, a lot of this comes down to trusting your own instincts and doing what you know works for you. 
Yeah, it's your original research, so if you don't have, like, that originality, then it would be kind of hard to do it anyway. So I think, you know, there's, like, you have to trust your instincts when it comes to your angle and how you're approaching your research and also who you work with, how you work best. You know, there are many different departments and many different styles, and a lot of it does come down to really what works for you. The uh, Just to talk in terms of years, a dissertation, I think a well-written dissertation really does require at least two years to write. Um, three years is nice, which is how much time I took. I saw a few people, I think, do it in a year. I think they felt yeah. rushed. I, I often get the sense That's they crazy. weren't that satisfied with what, they produced, um, but, you know, we were in a weird situation with our department closing, as Kim mentioned, so, you know, you kind of just make it work. Um, but, yeah, I think two years at least, I mean, to write a 200 to 400 page document that's going to represent your original contribution to the field, like... Yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, that, that's that document me. deserves at least I, two years. Yeah, I can't imagine doing it quicker than that, and if you did, it would be it might need more flushing out down the line. However, the other end of that extreme is that it can literally take forever. <laughs> like there's no, there's no limit on the time that people will take. And as Sophia mentioned, this is a stage of the process where many people just say, I can't do this for whatever reason. I just can't write this book. And a lot of people leave their degree at that point, which we have a name for that. It's called ABD, which stands for all but dissertation. So a lot of grad students make it to that point, And for whatever reason, they might think this is not the field for me. They might have other life obligations pop up. But it is a huge commitment to write a book, obviously. And that's what the dissertation is. So anywhere between, you know, one to two to three years, you finally get this document written. Your advisor says it's it's good to go. The next step is that you have to go to your defense, which, again, is this group of committee members convening together in a room. And this at this particular convening, what you're doing is presenting your findings of your dissertation. So you're pretty much telling all of your committee members what you did, what you found out, why the information or the knowledge that you created is so great and so special and such a great contribution. And then the committee members decide if they are going to pass you or not. And if they pass you, then you are done with your degree and you're a doctor. You have your PhD. And I think something you said that kind of applies here as well as with the uh, prospectus is that normally, you know, at the prospectus stage and at the dissertation stage, which is different from the comprehensive exam stage because you're not really producing a document then, they have the document to go over before you ever agree to a date. So, mm -hmm. um, or they'll have the opportunity to review the document before you actually get into the room, which means that the date can be canceled if it turns out your document is just like a pile of gibberish um printed across 200 pages <laughs> but you know because like I I don't know I'm just trying to like imagine what what's the worst case scenario there you just send them a 200 page document that's completely blank maybe um <laughs> oh man they could still can't like they can cancel your defense that's worst case scenario I mean I think most people probably submit something and the idea is is that whether it's for the prospectus which is a 12 page document or the dissertation if your committee feels like you are not ready to, you have not reached a level where they could like reasonably pass you, then they're not going to let you go to the defense. They'll send the document back, ask you to make revisions. So this is not somewhere where you're proving yourself in the sense that you have to, you know, people are like looking for a way to kind of knock your legs out from under you. By the time <laughs> you get in that room, everybody knows your work. Yeah. And they have so shown up. Yeah. But... Um, I think what they're trying to make sure is like, one, did you even write this? <laughs> there are, th you know, like there are things that could go wrong in that room. Like if it turned out that you just didn't know your subject at all and that you were not, in fact, the producer of your dissertation, but purchased it perhaps from someone else. Um, or, you know, just I think probably trying to make sure that like you conduct yourself like in a scholarly way um, mm -hmm. and just to make sure you're like still coherent. So can you can you publicly speak about your research? It's kind of mm -hmm. like practice, really, because a big part of an academic's life is like public communication. Um, yeah. I will say 
leading up to that defense, the week leading up to it, I've never been so nervous in my life <laughs> for that whole week. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever taken any kind of test, defense, exam where I wasn't, like, terrified. And it's really funny because, you know, at every stage I've, like, been surrounded by people who I know are going to pass. Like, I knew you were going to pass. I had a friend when um, I was in my master's program, Stephanie, who did her defense before me. I knew she was going to pass. But what's always funny is that you never believe that about yourself. I mean, probably both of you also looked at me because I know both of you told me at different points that you're not not going to pass. Right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, but it's funny how when it's you, you can't see yourself, um, objectively in the same way that you see other people where you look at them and go, what are you worried about? Like, you're going to pass. I have no doubt you're one of the brightest people I know. And then, but you can't see it for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's crazy, but Hey, if anyone out there is preparing for their defense, I would just say like, you got it and try to just go with it and not be too nervous. Um, yeah, your committee so, believes in you. Also, it seems like in science, they don't even read the dissertation from like every every scientist I've ever spoken to who's like, only my director read it. But <laughs> I guess we'll never truly know the answers to some of these questions. Oh, I know at least one of my committee members read the whole damn thing. <laughs> well, but. to round out this conversation about milestones and just sort of the, I guess, logistical side of graduate school, I want to mention two, I guess you could call them professional development elements, but they're really woven into the life, into the milestone element of the program or of any program. One of them is conferences, which um, maybe, Sophia, you can just sort of mention what conferences are. And then the other one is publications. And both conferences and publications are not necessarily needed to pass to the next milestone, so to speak. But there are elements of your professionalization as a scholar that you really want to try and weave in in any way that you can into your time as a grad student. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, I think if you to get a Ph.D. for sure, you could just take a complete pass on conferences and publications unless you're in one of those departments that makes publishing an article. Um one of the thing, one of the hoops that you have to jump through in order to complete your degree, which some do have like that requirement, you've got to produce one to three published articles. Um, and that's actually really more your dissertation than the dissertation is like they, mm-hmm. those make right. up your dissertation, but you have to have them published. But in most, I mean, in the humanities, especially in literature, that's really not a requirement that anyone sets. So you could get through your PhD and your master's completely avoiding conferences and publications, but you probably won't get a job in academia if you don't do those two things. Um, and I think there are probably elements of this to every every workplace or every job, every professional job um, that you, you know, you have the elements of your kind of like day to day that you have to accomplish to do your job at a particular company, then you have the things that you do in excess of that, that makes you look desirable to other companies in case you ever, you know, want to move. Conferences are a kind of academic gathering usually put on by an organization. It can be an international, national, regional, or even something as small as, say, the Edith Wharton Society, which is a conference I was going to be going to before they canceled (laughs) it. Um, And basically, so they come up with this kind of umbrella topic for the conference, and you submit either a panel proposal or even just a paper proposal um, at this conference or to this conference to see if you can come and present your research. And what this does is it offers you the opportunity to leave your department, whether you're an, a graduate student or a professor, and go and interact with your other colleagues at other universities face-to-face. It's like a workshop, basically. You know, other people who work on the same subject as you, but probably in, like, geographically quite distant places, will come together and try to give you advice based on this eight-page presentation for, you know, how you can push that presentation into um, becoming like a publishable paper. So that is kind of theoretically what a conference ought to offer is just an opportunity to take something that you want to publish, test it out on a larger audience, get their professional feedback, and then go back and get a publication. I would say that typically you want to be doing on average, one of these per year, you know, you may, you may do more than one some years, you may do none other years. And I kind of advise that, that you have like a year or two built in where you don't really need to do it. 
Um, but in, in general, you kind of want to like maintain an even schedule. Then your publications or your original research, peer-reviewed, and uh, a lot of times they come out of they may come out of conferencing. I guess they don't always. Mine have it <laughs> actually. Um, yeah, I. So the publication actually I think is like more important on your CV overall. One thing that I have heard is that you don't want your conferences. It's easier to get into conferences than it is to get through a peer-reviewed publication. One because it's an eight-page paper versus um, an eighteen to like forty-page paper. Um, but you don't want your conference list on your CV to like be much weightier than your publication list because then it looks like you don't really publish. Yeah, so I think that those two elements of any graduate school program are just important things to know about and to know that they're going to pop up at your time as a graduate student. Um, so that's Sophia and I's super quick rundown of major milestones in the PhD or graduate school world. Um, now I think we're going to turn to a less institutional side of PhD or graduate school life and explore some of the other elements and things that come up while you are a grad student. I think it's important when discussing graduate school to mention the mental health crisis that many people face, many graduate students face. This is a very scientifically proven crisis at this point. There's been a ton of data and research and studies done on graduate students, psychologically and specifically PhD students. Some of the articles are in Nature Magazine, Science Magazine, um, Science Direct, and I can link all of these articles for anybody interested. But basically, the science shows that doctoral students disproportionately experience anxiety, depression, and other forms of mental illness throughout their training. Uh, for example, one in two PhD students experiences psychological distress, and one in three is at risk of a common psychiatric disorder. So these statistics are really staggering and really sobering. And as being a PhD student myself, I can attest that you will be placed under a lot of psychological strain during these years. And I just think that's something to mention, not to deter anybody who really wants to go into graduate school, but just as a general awareness that this is what you're walking into. I think, I mean, we all have our, our theories on why this is the case, but I think for me, it came down to not having the institutional support that I expected. So if I could pay it forward to anyone coming into graduate school now, I would say don't expect any support. Not to be like depressing about it, but just to be real about it and say you're not you're probably not going to have the infrastructure or the support from mentors, professors, the administration or whatever. It's there's not going to be an infrastructure there for you to in any way, shape or form guide you through the program. And I think that not having any of that support lends itself to a lot of students feeling a lot of these anxiety, depression and other mental illness symptoms throughout their time. So that being said, and hopefully if you're listening to this, you are now aware, if you were not aware prior to this mental health crisis of grad students, I want to ask Sophia, and I also will discuss myself, some of the things that we found throughout our journey in grad school that helped us cope with this stark reality. Some things that we did along the way that were sort of like life rafts, if you will. Um, Sophia, do you yeah. want to start us off with something that helped you? Yeah, you know, I mean, just really quickly, I want to add to your blurb as well that um, I, too, at like certain points during my time as a graduate student, really struggled. Um, I think especially, I think a lot of people probably struggle around the time that you're approaching the job market. I mean, I don't think really anyone once you get to the PhD level, is unaware of the really stark kind of reality of um, academia. But most people kind of enter the academy thinking, I definitely want to be a professor and I'm going to do what I have to to rise to the mm -hmm. top. So I feel like there's still like a lot of times when we come into the program, we still are really kind of buying into this meritocracy where it's like, but if I work hard enough, I can do it. Um, and I do want to kind of push back on the mer meritocratic method just to say, you know, it, it doesn't, meritocracy is not a good thing. First of all, it's highly elitist. 
And second of all, like, the best thing you can do for your own mental health, in my opinion, is one, to just, like, very quickly not let, do not let the meritocracy define who you are. And try to the best of your ability, and it's going to be really hard, but not to um, let your self-worth become too entangled with your academic career. Because those are the things yeah. for me that become the biggest struggle is when I start to identify who I am with whether I'm successful as an academic or not. And yeah, great. Those point. are just two different I, things. Yeah, I love this saying. I, I heard this somewhere in grad school and I always think it like it still pops into my head. It's like you aren't a Ph.D. You have a Ph.D. And I just love that saying because so many students say like, I'm a PhD student or I, I'm a PhD. I'm a doctorate. I'm a doctor. It's like, no, you are not that. That's not your identity. That's something that you have earned. And it's a certain element of your identity. But totally agree. I think for me, I was able to cultivate a very strong yoga practice alongside my grad school life. And that was hugely beneficial to me. Also, a meditation practice I wound up cultivating outside of school. These are like totally separate. I mean, I did start writing a little bit about mindfulness, but in general, these were two very separate worlds and it really lended itself to helping my mental health. Um, and then like the self-care, I mean, it sounds like a little silly, but truly self-care is something that I would say any PhD student should invest in, whether that means taking a long bath or going to the gym or developing whatever your self-care routine is, truly invest in figuring out what helps you unwind, what helps you relax and put just as much energy into figuring that question out as you do into figuring out all the other things we talked about, the committees, the conferences, all of those other milestones. Your mental health is truly the foundation of your ability to do your degree. So I believe in it. 100% it's important that grad students work on a sort of self-care practice alongside yeah. their studies. And I think it's really worth reiterating that there's a lot that is toxic about the way that higher ed currently functions and the direction that it's going in. And so there are going to be a lot of times when you feel that pressure um, and that toxicity. And I think, you know, in those moments, it really helps to have something written down or just somewhere where you can go and remind yourself that as Kim, like very succinctly put it, you are not a PhD, you have a PhD or you're not, you're not being in the PhD program. You are pursuing a PhD. <laughs> and one thing I really admired about Sophia was that she always did tango dancing alongside her PhD. And that was a interest of hers that was totally different and totally separate. And I always really admired that about Sophia. So thanks oh, for thank also influencing <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Having hobbies is a really important part. And that's kind of one of the first things that we're, I think, going to start getting into. We have a few different categories. But I think for me, there was a time when I did my master's degree where there was no tango in Clemson. Or if there was, I didn't find it. Every once in a while, I'd drive to Atlanta. But um Mostly, really, what sustained me during those years were my friendships with my fellow graduate students and the the ways that we sort of collectively found to spend time together that moved us away from work. Mm. Um, you know, one thing that seems to be very common for many people who go on to get PhDs is that you have a, well, I guess we all have a really hard time separate because we, we're doing what we love. <laughs> you wouldn't do this to yourself otherwise. Um, it's hard to separate work from play and that kind of allows work to pervade every moment of your life and um, one of the things that was really helpful to me was I had a friend when I was in my master's program who seemed to kind of have instituted a rule for herself that she was not going to be working on weekends and that's a good as rule. a part of that she kept inviting all of us over <laughs> um, for parties and we would all go out in Clemson and this is like maybe not the best way to kind of get through your master's degree because there's a really big drinking culture in Clemson and kind of the only thing to do in a small town like that is to like go to Main Street and go to a bar collectively um, but that being said 
you know, this was a way getting together, having some kind of social outlet with each other, irrespective of whether you're drinking or not, was a way to draw a sharp boundary between work and a time for rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of my fondest memories of graduate school are the parties that we went to. And I know I'm thinking specifically of this one party we wound ourselves up at on Long Island that was at the beach because Stony Brook oh is <laughs> on Long Island. And I mean, Long Island is a varied place with lots of different cultures, but the coastline is absolutely stunning. Some of the most gorgeous beaches and gorgeous sunsets. And Sophia and I were at this party one year and we were just at the beach watching the sunset and had a glass of wine in our hands and like as much as everything else in the world can suck, those are the moments that when you're doing something with people who you enjoy being with, you just remember those things. And, and those are really important moments. So I would say if you're invited to a party, if you're invited out, if you're invited on a hike or to a beach or whatever, accept that invitation, go for it, have a couple conversations, um, have, you know, whatever helps you unwind and relax sort of do those things now and then. I mean, of course, it's always a balance, but the friendships that you make in grad school are really unique. And I think it behooves you to explore them a little bit and get to know people because those people become your comrades, really, like in this extremely unique and difficult experience of grad school. The people that yeah. you see socially can really help you with that. Yeah, I think when you go into grad school, one thing that you kind of is really interesting that's different from um, being an undergrad is that you come in with what's called a cohort. So you have anywhere between, I would say, six to 12 colleagues, usually actually maybe, no, your class was actually pretty big, but six to 12 um, colleagues in any given cohort. When I did my master's, there were 12. When I came into Stony Brook, there were six. So that's where I got my numbers from. And <laughs> anecdotal evidence is not real evidence. <laughs> Uh, but that's uh, what I'm going to use right now. And um, it's a very small handful of people, but you're all kind of working on the same things, which is an interesting experience. And you're about to share this very specific and kind of unique journey and trajectory together, especially when you the cohort you come in with, you'll take a lot of the same classes, which may not be offered to the cohort behind you. At the same time, you'll be mixed in with all of the other people who are pursuing a master's or a PhD in your program through your office placement and um, maybe some of the service opportunities that you take advantage of. And maybe some of them will even still be doing coursework. And those people provide kind of another network of people who can show you examples of how to set goals and move through the PhD in an effective way. I mean, one person who... I used really as a model for what my timeline was going to be was um, now Dr. Beth Sai, uh, who is a film studies, cultural studies, PhD. And she was very, she was always meeting her deadlines <laughs> and she sat next to me um, in our office. And so I just did exactly what she did. Um, and that was where I got my timeline from. I was like, oh, well, she finished her comps in three years. So obviously it's doable. I'm going to aim for that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think everybody kind of around you in their own way will probably have something that they kind of contribute to your studies, the people that, but I think the people that, um, are in your office or are in your cohort definitely comprise some of the, um, closest the major relationships players. you'll have. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I love this phrase you used coming of age in graduate school, because I think that that's a lot of people sort of not even totally dependent on their actual age, but a lot of people go through something like that because the process of the academic process of writing a book is so intense. I think socially your maturity also kind of goes through some type of evolution. And believe me, there's a lot of gossip and a lot of drama that will be running through the halls of your graduates, <laughs> graduate school I had, program. I did have a section here called the high drama. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to say those things don't exist because believe me, they do. But I'm just trying to say, like, there are brighter lights that you should probably walk towards than the gossip and the drama, because those things will always be there. But when it comes down to it, are they really going to aid you in any of your goals? Probably not. 
So, hey, I mean, make a few bad decisions, do what you need to do, but try to find those friendships and those truly bright lights of consistency that will help you both psychologically and socially, and then also that will lead into helping you with your degree as well. And I would say going into um, any program with the thought process of not not a reality star, I'm not here to make friends, um, but with the thought <laughs> process of I am here to make friends, I am here yeah. to find colleagues, I'm here to create a network of scholars that I can rely on and come back to as I move through my own journey of a scholar, that this is a community. These are the things that you want to be thinking about as you go into a program that I find pretty much, maybe not in every cohort, but at every institution that I've been in, there's always at least one graduate student who in really heavily invests in this idea of a meritocracy, and they really strongly tie their identity to the idea that they're going to climb to the top of the heap. Um, or, I don't know, weird spatial metaphor for you. <laughs> and I find that's usually where a lot of the drama begins to ensue, is when there's um, this kind of competitiveness that begins to form in any kind of group of people where maybe one or several people start to want to be above other people and start competing for like, well, I want to have the most publications. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to be the only one who got the A in this course. I want that kind of stuff. It's very tempting to fall into that because we're in a competitive marketplace. And to some extent, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, you, you are going to have to do everything you can to try to set yourself apart in some ways, but it's, that that should be, you know, do what's within your power, I guess, to, like, produce good work. But don't make that a personality competition. Like, right. really come in with a plan to build a community for yourself. Because at its at its roots, an educational community is at its best when it's multivocal, when it is a community, when it's not just one person, you know, who, right. I don't know, managed to be better than the rest by some arbitrary standard. So to me, that's usually where the, the what I call the high drama begins to ensue is when people start getting into that kind of like competitive rat race mentality. And that can happen at the graduate level, graduate student level. It can happen at the um, scholarly level. And, I think and it probably will happen. Like, I think there's always someone in, in grad school who is that person. So mm -hmm. they're a recognizable figure, I think. Yeah, you'll always find, even even when you're done with grad school and, you know, let's say you manage to get the ten, the disappearing tenure track jobs, um, just one of them, and uh, you, you will find that there are those figures as well amongst the professoriate who, you know, have sort of moored their scholarly identity to being this concept of the best, um, really buying into that idea that a meritocracy is a functional way of yeah. creating a community and that the best rise to the top. And that's, to me, that's one of the most toxic mindsets that yeah, that's you can totally, kind of find anywhere. Totally toxic mindset. And like we've been saying, like one of the great ways to just minimize the space that the, this toxicity takes up in your brain is to do other things like join a club, join a group, do something not involved with your university, not a club at your university, a club totally somewhere else. I mean, if you're in a small town, Maybe that will be challenging. I don't know. But I truly recommend, like, maybe become a runner and just, like, start running long distances. Like, do something that's not linked to your department or your grad students, your fellow grad students or professors. For me, that was totally crucial. And I think, um, like Sophia is saying, I think the way to kind of minimize or step away from those toxic atmospheres and toxic mindsets is to sometimes just not give them all of your unfiltered attention. Don't give them air to breathe, as the uh, Real Housewives often say. Don't give it air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's hard, but I think, like, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's why you've got to, like, focus on this idea of friendship and community building. And that can be, as you said, it doesn't have to just be within your cohort or within the academic community. It can also be, you know, attending a knitting circle or... Um, I mean, I encourage people a lot of times really to start their kind of social media early on and I think like Instagram is another great place where you can kind of see models of not only can you like just kind of watch hobbies that you're interested in and maybe you want to start partaking in but also you can see different models of how um, scholars are conducting themselves yeah yeah um, so I would love to actually turn the conversation over to 
a little bit more of these different uh, projects or different ways of kind of expressing yourself as students. But I think we've sort of covered some of the ways that you can get outside of the negativity that permeates academic life. And again, this is scientifically backed fact. This isn't just me saying I had a tough time or Sophia saying whatever, there was some negativity. This is actually a problem um, amongst PhD students. So I just wanted to give yeah. voice to that. And I think there are two ways to break that down. You know, one, take breaks. Don't try to work all the time. Just go ahead and have scheduled, like, leisure time. And two, make time for friends. So within academia, something that irritates me, it's this thread of despair that runs through graduate students. The end of the world, everything sucks. And I just want to say, no, it doesn't. Earning a PhD is still an honor and a privilege, I believe. It's a marathon of endurance and grit, intellect and passion and creativity. Despair and negative thoughts are toxic to your growth as a human in general. So what is the point of doing a PhD or going to graduate school if there's all this negativity out there, if there's all these dire statistics and lack of infrastructure, lack of funding? Well, I don't like to rest in that place of despair. I believe that there's still a lot that we can do with PhDs. And I like to focus on some of the ways that we can utilize our degrees and our training and our skill sets to shoot those skills off into even different arenas than maybe we didn't prepare for. We can sit here for hours and say all the things that we wish we had as information that we didn't have as students, but the fact is we earned a lot of really amazing skills and so many skills <laughs> we can just go back and we already talked about some of them, but whether it's time management or leadership or writing a book, a lot of these things that you learn as a PhD student, you can apply not only to the goal of becoming a professor, if that is your goal, which is wonderful and I encourage everyone to continue to, to pursue it as Sophia and I are, but there's also other things you can do with this training. And one of them is to utilize media and social media a little bit more creatively maybe than other generations have because they didn't have those opportunities with social media. Um, so instead of kind of demonizing this 21st century model of education that we find ourselves in, we maybe wanna ask ourselves what we can do with this newfound freedom. And um, Sophia actually is a great person to speak to this because her Instagram, The Metropolitanist, sort of grew out of this <laughs> kind of general goal. And maybe you want to just speak briefly on that? Yeah. Um, so one thing that I would add to that is I like to think of us, you know, some people say the university is in ruins or the death of the university or that kind of phrase. I really prefer to think of it as we're in a transitional moment. Um, from one form of education, I think it's inevitable that we're going to move into like a new phase or we're going to see like a, hopefully a better form of education emerge from this. But we're definitely in a moment where it's like kind of hard to say what that's going to look like. Um, so I always try to frame my project around the idea of what do I think is like missing in education today? And mm -hmm. for me, that was... Um, public outreach from the ivory tower and you know i always found people really didn't know what my field of comparative literature was and but they were curious but maybe also they didn't want to ask because they felt stupid asking which you know first of all you shouldn't because i didn't even know what comparative literature was when i went <laughs> into my program um but i think so for me that's kind of where the instagram comes from is this idea of like okay, I like having a classroom of 30 people. I, I like having, I like publishing like peer reviewed work feels good. It's interesting. It's something that I do want to do. But at the same time, I would like to reach more than on average what a uh, peer reviewed article gets like six readers. So I'm like reaching a 36 person audience from year to year. So <laughs> wow, <laughs> I was Yeah. Um, I mean, more if you think about how many classes you teach, but it's like it's a small number compared to what you can do. Right. So I decided I want to start talking about what I do on a platform where 
anybody can see it if they, you know, have five minutes at a library computer, they can, you know, read a post and maybe learn a little bit because I got into this field because I wanted to talk about research. I wanted to educate. So, um, yes, I created the Metropolitanist on Instagram as a way to do that, where I would have a visual paired with like what I hoped would be, and it never really works out this way, a brief blurb that you could learn from for the day. Yeah, for me as well, throughout graduate school, I tried to take the opportunities to grow in different professional ways outside of the academy. Like I had different editorial stints over the summer and things like that, that helped me grow out my writing in a way that wasn't so focused on academic writing. And then this past year, I started my literary review and a lot of the things that I had been doing outside of academia, a lot of my editorial work and publishing work that wasn't related to academia actually wound up being really crucial for that project as well. So I guess like I'm sort of giving varied advice, but I'm not really telling anybody if they should stay or shouldn't stay because I don't think that that's super helpful advice. I think the point is, is that the PhD is not an end-all be-all. It's a great degree to have, but you also have the empowerment and the autonomy to choose what to do with that skill set. And I think that's a really important point that we need to maybe tell PhD candidates and PhD students more upfront. Like, hey, you can go down the academic path. You can um, become a professor, become a teacher, which is wonderful, but you don't have to do that. And I think a lot of students feel like they have to go that route. And I think, I think what, a lot of people want to go that route, but it's unfortunately like, it's just, not, there's not a lot of it. So Right. Right. And there's a variety of reasons of why you might not want to go down that route. One of them might be that you don't want an adjunct. You don't want to be a part of the gig economy. You don't want to have these sort of like unstable realities of your profession. And I just think that for me, I want to point out to anybody who's considering this career path that there are there is flexibility inherent within it. And I think the Metropolitanist is a great example of that, as is um, the Evocations Review. I think the creativity and flexibility that grad students bring to their own grad work is something that I would encourage students to like really endorse it and really like fuel the flame of what their passion is or what led them to grad school in the first place and not stop growing as an individual and as a professional. It's a central part of doing the PhD, right, is that you begin to define who you are as a scholar. And I think a part of that that we is kind of uncharted territory right now because there have been these like very kind of rigid structures that as an academic you're expected to participate in. But I think at this particular moment in history with social media, with the the university kind of being in the state that it's in, it's a great time to begin to define who you want to be in the public sphere and to begin to put that version of yourself out there rather than waiting for someone to confer, um, right. You know, the right position on you in order to have that voice. Like, no, by virtue of being a PhD candidate and by having like done this work up to this point, it's, this is your like kind of moment to sort of launch out there at the same time. I think, you know, you don't have to get a PhD either. And that's another thing, you know, I mean, it's something that you do. And I think what's, what it's worthwhile to think about, I think a lot of people, because you really only need a PhD to go into academia. So a lot of people plan to go into academia when they go on to get a PhD, because it's like the one career field where you actually have to go and get this thing in order to qualify for it. But Given the job market and the way that it is right now, I think it's always worth thinking about as you're trying to decide if you're going to do a PhD, do I want to take the next five to eight years or four to eight years working on an independent research project? Is that something that I have the years in my life to spare? Um, for me, it definitely was. You know, that's, I can't think of another way I would have wanted to spend those six years that I spent doing my PhD. So, and I think that it's valid regardless of what you plan to do afterwards. If that, you know, if doing an independent research project is something you want to do, then, you know, you can go for it. There are sacrifices, but there are sacrifices with everything you do. You just have to weigh 
yeah you know what what it's worth to you absolutely and i mean just to sort of like mirror how i started this segment I do find that negativity so toxic and just so annoying. I mean, there's probably like negativity in every place you go. But for me, I I don't think it's necessary. I think that, yeah, the, the stakes of the job market might be not great right now. But that doesn't mean we need to walk around like saying it's the end of the world or moping. We're still incredibly, or if you are in a PhD program, you're still incredibly lucky, I believe, to have the opportunity to do that type of work. So... I would just say, I used like, to say there's always someone who will tell you that like you're not fit to pick up tennis balls off a tennis court if you let them. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, yeah, like every every field is kind of it's like a, it's a competitive market everywhere you go. So that also can't be the deciding factor. Yeah. And it's also a little bit abstract, like this conversation right now, because doing this podcast, the Salon of Vocations, is the collaboration between our two projects we just mentioned. So in a lot of ways, we are in that transitional moment that you're mentioning, Sophia. Like we are kind of in the midst right now of transitioning out of graduate students and into professionals and trying different projects and putting content out there and seeing sort of what sticks and where we land. And I think it's a really exciting place to be in. You know, as a part of a class I took with actually Kim's director, um, dissertation director, Victoria Hesford, she had us read this book by Linda Zarelli, um, The Abyss of Freedom. And it's kind of all about this idea that um, kind of anything that like can move or just like do really kind of anything is like expressing some like base. I guess kind of like animal level form of freedom, right? That like, I don't know, you let a dog out the door and it will go where it's going to go and it's free to do that um, regardless of the consequences. There may not be positive consequences to that, but there was a certain amount of freedom allowed there. Um, And I found that a really foundational text for me because then it took that as the jumping off point and it basically said freedom is not being able to predict where the things that you do, um, what the results of the things that you do are going to be. It is instead acting in the face of really not knowing what the outcomes are going to be. And I often think about my own projects in that like framework, which is just to think, I don't know what the impact of creating a research-based Instagram is going to be, but it's possible it'll, it'll do something different and invite people to think a little bit differently. And that it might, you know, brighten people's lives a bit, hopefully. I mean, hopefully it doesn't have negative consequences, <laughs> but... <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I, I like mean, that framework. I mean, I think a lot of things form in the absence of really knowing what's coming into being. And when I say that we're in a transitional time, I think that education is going to look very different 100 years from now. And I think that we really may be a part of defining what that is. Well, speaking for myself, I can say that it has been an absolute delight doing this podcast with you. I hope that we can continue and do a season two and hopefully everyone listening can provide us some sort of feedback whether that's rating our podcast or writing into either one of us or just following along our journeys in the vein of community building this is a great experiment to see what happens 